0: Week world leaders converge on New York for the UN General Assembly, but what's the true value of the United Nations? Water cannons are fired during a three-way wrangle over islands in the Far East, but what does it say about China's military plans? What do the Lib Dems think about defence? And why 25,000 marchers are expected on the streets of Belfast this weekend? World leaders have gathered in New York for the UN General Assembly. In his address, US President Barack Obama has urged global leaders to rally against extremism. Obama said it was the obligation of all leaders to speak out forcefully against violence. Unrest across the Middle East is expected to dominate discussion at the summit. David Cameron used a speech to highlight the tensions there, saying that the Arab Spring could become an Arab Winter. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Martin McCauley, the international affairs analyst, from University College London and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Gentlemen, hello. Uh, Dr. Macaulay, what can be achieved at this UN General Assembly? Will anything a- actually get done? Uh,
1: it's a talking shop, but the real business is done on the side because you can have informal uh, meetings because everybody's there And uh, you can have these informal meetings and uh, business can be done and then uh, they can go back to their capitals and various other places and work out the details.
0: So, Christopher, what kind of deals can go on on the sidelines in these fringe meetings?
1: Well, you can actually, for example, say,
2: what do you want if you're going to vote on the Security Council, for example, something we're trying to push through, let's say, on Syria? Can you tell me how sympathetic that you can be to the, the, the way that we're going? The other part of it, it gives people the opportunity, rather like a party conference in a way, to make announcements. Now, for example, David Cameron made an announcement about a humanitarian to aid to Syria. Now, if you then get behind Cameron and look out at the audience, you can see the expressions on people's faces, contentment, contempt... Whatever it is. So you can judge what international opinion... It's the, it's, it's the party, uh, the United Nations, the General Assembly. You can go, you can talk to people on the backstairs. You don't have to make a big thing of it. You don't have to say, we're going to sign something. But you come away having met most of the people that matter to you politically.
0: Martin McCauley, on Syria, um, we've heard talk of paralysis in what the UN can achieve. Do you think we are going to see any movement on Russia and China on this issue at the moment?
1: Uh, Russia and China are in a, in a difficult position, especially the Chinese. The Chinese have uh, a once-in-a-decade change of leadership next month and the party congress may actually be delayed so therefore if you like china's out of the out of the frame china will not engage in any diplomatic initiatives russia is different because putin is very ambitious and so on uh, and he wants to be seen as a savior of syria he wants to be seen as the man who's helping assad to solve to solve the problem and so on
0: christopher what, what do the speeches the leaders tell us that we've heard um obama
1: speech
2: Uh, was extraordinarily good on terrorism. You don't let terrorism beat you up. That was the big thing. This is, as far as the Americans see, is the big issue. Now, what is fascinating, of course, is that this has got nothing to do with the main thing on his mind, like getting re-elected on November the 6th uh, against Romney. And so what he was talking about then was a policy decision, a foreign policy, announcing his foreign policy attitude, which won't have any effect whatsoever on his electoral chances, People, mainly because it's still the economy, stupid, and people not much interest in what he has to say there, whereas Cameron was very forceful. He gave an absolute fanging to the United Nations, to members, uh, to, implicitly to China and, and, and to Russia. And this was considered along the people I've spoken to at the UN, not the British, this was considered actually a, quite a memorable speech from a Prime Minister. Where so you think
0: Cameron did, did a very good job there?
1: Cameron did the money.
0: Martin? What do you make
1: of what David Cameron said? Uh, I would say that from the Russian and Chinese point of view, they will dismiss it. Uh, Russia and China regard Britain as a a power which is going down. They see it as far too closely allied with the United States. Uh, The big player is the United States. And what the Russians and Chinese don't want to happen is a fundamentalist regime in Syria... Uh, which then might uh, come into Central Asia, it might come into Russia proper, uh, it might, in fact, get into uh, Xinjiang in, in China and so on. And so, therefore, they would like the present uh, regime to stay. I'll tell you, what, I tell you what, Martin, um, Cameron, when he went in, started talking
2: about Africa. And he says, you get Africa right, you make Africans comfortably off. You will benefit it, Benefit from you, financially, commercially. It seemed to me that we had the odd thing we saw, I heard Cameron more or less repeating the mantra of Tony Blair and Tony Blair's last speech to the United Nations as British Prime Minister.
0: Briefly, um, Christopher, what do you think of what President Ahmadinejad said in his speech? Uh,
2: it's great stuff because, this is probably our, Ahmadinejad's last speech because he has to go as President. Uh, great stuff uh, but boycotted uh, wasn't uh, it? Uh, boycotted because he's always, boy- but is always a sense of truth about it and he says the one thing that's scary which a lot of people believe he believes that there is a right wing in Israel that is looking to bomb Iran. And there are a lot of people of those delegates, nearly 200 delegates sitting there, who thought Ahmadinejad may may be a nutcase, maybe a a basket case, whatever (coughs) we like to call him, but he might be right. And that's always the case of people like him. Uh, Castro was the same when I heard Castro speak at the United Nations.
0: What do you think the the point of the United Nations is these days, Martin McCauley? Uh,
1: It's a talking shop.
0: That's it. Uh, I mean, ta- you did talk about the deals on the sidelines ta- can It's very be done. important
1: that they come together and the deals are done on the side. The Security Council is locked because you have these five permanent members who have a veto. And Russia and China are not going to allow the United States to do anything. Uh, Russia's point of view is if the Americans want something, we don't want that. But you can't go to war, Martin, without a United Nations resolution
2: backing up your judicial opinion of why you should go to war. We saw the argument about that. Were we following uh, UN guidelines when we went into Iraq? So that makes it a bit more important than I think that people uh, know it to be. Remember, there are around about 200 states in the United Nations. The United Nations is the sum of those 200 states, and that's the important thing. You tell me what else you would put in its place.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. Also at the UN this week, the Chinese and Japanese foreign ministers have held talks concerning their bitter row over disputed islands. Apparently the atmosphere at this meeting was described as severe. The islands, called Senkaku in Japan and Dioyu in China, are controlled by Japan but are also claimed by both China and Taiwan. On Tuesday, Japanese and Taiwanese ships sprayed each other with water cannons after a Taiwanese flotilla briefly entered what Japan says are its territorial waters. Well, joining us from B. FBS Brunei is our man in the Far East, Steve Britton. Hello, Steve. Um, This row has only just started to make the news over here, uh, but it's been rumbling on for quite some time, hasn't it?
3: Yes, it has. I guess in Europe you could be forgiven for thinking that these islands are making a first appearance in the news headlines. But uh, as we know in this part of the world, as far back as 1996, Uh, A Japanese group built a lighthouse on one of them. Chinese activists then responded by sailing to the area, and one of them drowned. He came from Hong Kong, and that was after a standoff with some Japanese patrol boats. That sparked demonstrations outside the Japanese Consulate General's office in the former colony, and it also reignited similar claims of the type that we're hearing now. The big debate that's going on at the moment, very similar back then. There have been several spats since then involving Japanese patrol boats and Chinese or Taiwanese fishing vessels with as many as 50 of the latter involved in one protest, so it is fairly well known about. Uh, Another incident that did rear its head in the newspaper columns came two years ago. Uh, You might remember this one when Japanese... Uh, seized a Chinese trawler that collided with two of its Coast Guard vessels. That resulted in a fairly serious diplomatic row and anti-Japanese demonstrations. And then, of course, in April of this year, the governor of Tokyo said he was going to use Japanese government money to buy the island from what was said to be a private owner. Uh, And it was that purchase which ultimately brought us to the point we're now at.
0: Indeed, and China flexing its muscles in many ways as well.
3: Uh, it's, it's been gaining pace, it's got to be said, across the area of the South China Sea, virtually all of which they're now claiming, um, which is not surprisingly, this sounds very familiar as well, it's said to hold some very valuable energy reserves and fisheries, as well as being home to some of the world's busiest shipping lanes. Unfortunately, China's claims coincide with others from this part of the world, from the likes of Vietnam, the Philippines, Brunei, where I'm talking to you from now, Taiwan and Malaysia. Now, that's been the case for quite a while, but the temperature has risen more recently, as, as we've been hearing and uh, seeing in our newspapers over here, through China putting oil and gas exploration blocks up for tender in these contested areas, as well as through building a fairly well-publicised new city, which is called Fansha. Uh, the population of that is small, and its area is just five square miles, but Sansha claims two million square kilometres of sea area, and it has its own military garrison as well. To- now, once it- Go on, Kate. Sorry.
0: Uh, No, carry on, please.
3: No, I was just going to say, one theory as to why China has been flexing her muscles more recently in this part of the world blames America's recent shift of focus towards the region. That's said to be giving the countries that are contesting China's claims greater nerve to do so more aggressively, the likes of the Philippines and Vietnam especially.
0: Uh, Steve, stay with us. Um, Martin McCauley, how concerned do you think we should be about the stability of this region?
3: Well, Leon
1: Panetto, the U.S. Defense Secretary, when he was in Tokyo and Beijing, uh, pointed out that uh, the Japanese and Chinese could actually make a mistake. Somebody could misjudge a situation which could then escalate into something much more serious. And he appealed for calm and so on. But from the Chinese point of view, they they must uh, underline their sovereignty. Remember that uh, uh, relations between China and Japan have been difficult... Uh, Japan was in China from 1931 to 1945 uh, and uh, it was in Korea as well and the memories of that are still fresh in the Chinese mind so therefore they are not going to give in to the Japanese.
0: Uh, Christopher on that point that Steve was making uh, about the US moving its focus to the Pacific what will America be doing about this at the UN General Assembly?
2: At uh, The Assembly is it it, having these bilateral talks Trying to calm down people who might oppose them, who might get onto, in this, if you like, the Chinese sharp bang bandwagon. But there's one thing that's happened this week, and that the Chinese have put on display or launched or commissioned their first aircraft carrier. And the Americans at the United Nations are saying, look, there is evidence that China is expanding militarily in the area. Now, this aircraft carrier doesn't have any planes, it doesn't have any pilots, it doesn't have any helicopters, and really it's going to be a training ship, and, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning of learning something that you need to learn. If you have an heli- uh, aircraft carrier, you suddenly got into the business of force projection. And force projection is the most powerful uh, military force in the world, and the Chinese
1: have never been there.
0: Martin, uh, what, what are China's military strategies and intentions, do you think?
1: Well, Mao Zedong, in the 1950s, told his navy and his military, we're going to take control of the Pacific so therefore, China has said uh, that it it should control the region up to the Hawaii and the Americans can have Hawaii to the United States. That's their goal, and they've put down various markers and so on. And uh, they have told Malaysia and Vietnam and all these other countries uh, that they will deal bilaterally with them because Vietnam, Philippines want the Americans to come in and negotiate with them. They said, no, it's going to be uh, Beijing to you and so on uh, because our our will is the important will. We are not going to make concessions.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. Steve Britton in Brunei. Thank you for your time today. Still to come this week, we head to the Liberal Democrat conference in Brighton to hear the party's thoughts on defence. And at least twenty-five thousand people are expected to take part in parades through Belfast on Saturday to mark a hundred years of the Ulster Covenant.
3: The FBS zip
0: The proposed mega merger between Britain's biggest defence supplier BAE Systems and the European giant EADS was never going to be easy. The deadline for submitting detailed plans of how it would work is October the 10th and already the German defence minister is asking for an extension. Earlier I spoke to BFBS reporter Will Inglis who talked me through some of the conflicting interests that need to be overcome by the main partner countries namely Britain, France and Germany before any deal can proceed.
4: There's all sorts of national interests that the the three main players here, the UK, France and Germany, will want to protect. Most obvious amongst those, uh, as with with any merger of this nature, really, is jobs and uh, just where some of this uh, manufacturing will take place. BAE Systems, of course, is the UK's largest manufacturer. They make uh, warplanes, for instance, at Wharton. Now, that work is duplicated, literally duplicated in three other places in Spain, in Germany and in Italy. There are rival production lines also churning out typhoons from parts made in each of the partner nations. Now that deal was done as a way of making sure that the work from the typhoon was shared around the partner nations. If there is effectively though just one contractor plus a minority shareholder, Mechanica in Italy it makes it that much harder to, to delineate that work and literally within one company there will be three duplicators Production lines producing that. Now, for the typhoon, that deal's uh, sewn up already, but for whatever replaces it, perhaps one day in the future, if there is to be another typhoon tornado style multinational project, that makes it that much harder.
0: What about national security issues that may be at stake or might actually be uh, unveiled by sharing in equipment projects?
4: Yeah, this is a difficulty, especially for the UK, because BAE Systems, I mean, obviously used to be um, state-owned in one of its previous guises, and has really been a a, a monopoly supplier to the UK Ministry of Defence on on many projects. For instance, amongst them um, submarine building, uh, and a lot of the technology that goes into the submarines that come out of Barrow and Furness, obviously is proprietary UK Ministry of Defence, UKIs only, really, in, in many cases. And that's not something really that could be shared with, for instance, the French and the German governments. I mean, there would have to be a degree of firewalling within this new organisation to to prevent uh, what is really sensitive information getting into the hands of, of of other governments and other investors, and that poses a difficulty because if, for instance, I mean, let's take as a hypothetical example, the astute class. Imagine for a moment that the astute class was running billions of pounds over budget and years late. Obviously, that's the kind of thing you might want to talk about at a board meeting of the uh, of the contractor involved. You might start to run into difficulties if the uh, board members of that company are representing, for instance, other national interests.
0: And the advantages of the deal going ahead?
4: Well, there are. (laughs) here's a difficult one. There are clear synergies, as investors uh, would put it. That is to say that there are areas which duplicate across the two companies, where you could do it uh, cheaper and generate better economies of scale by doing everything together. Of course, realistically, synergies, while they sound great in a shareholder statement, sound pretty bad if you're on the shop floor. Because if you're an aircraft fitter at Wharton, and uh, there's someone doing a similar job to you uh, in a German factory, an EADS factory, suddenly that becomes a rather vulnerable position to be in because the company eventually when things get tight as things are at the moment will have to choose between really the guy in wharton and the guy in germany and that is really i think why the germans and the french in particular are so reluctant to surrender their uh, their shareholdings physical shareholdings in the company whereas the uk government only owns a, a notional single golden share uh, the, the French government especially wants to be able to shape the policy of this company in order to protect jobs in part, also national interests at a, at a broader level. But really, it's this, it's this business about being able to control exactly what the company does and the way that it does it, which obviously a seat on the board gives you, whereas a, a nominal golden share held by the uh, Minister for Trade and Industry doesn't.
0: Will English, there. Um, Christopher Lee, what about the Americans and all of this? Boeing
2: which is the biggest in the world that gets into military contracts, as well as commercial uh, air contracts. (laughs) Boeing is saying to the United States government, through the executive, i.e. the President's office, into Senate and into Congress, if this goes through, then we, Boeing, will be threatened. If we're threatened, then jobs will be threatened here. And if we're threatened with jobs, you can't pork barrel you can't do your internal politics in the Senate. So
0: are you saying that, that that Boeing may have a bigger deciding factor in this than perhaps American concerns about national security? Boeing
2: will have a big decider, and it already has done in other areas, in commercial aircraft building, where there was the Americans, an American company, was actually going to buy uh, a European into the European Airbus. And Boeing said, no, 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 no you can't do that. And they scrapped the policy, and they scrapped the the eventual contract. And I think the fight ain't over until Boeing finished singing.
0: Right. It's political party conference season once again, and the Liberal Democrats have been gathered in Brighton this week. They're trying to spell out what makes them different from their Conservative coalition partners, but defence doesn't seem to be high on their list. While their long-standing disagreement over replacing Trident has merited a few mentions, their leader Nick Clegg has told BFBS part of the reason he chose to swap their ministerial post in defence for another Whitehall job is because he's great confidence in the Conservative Defence Secretary Philip Hammond from. Brighton James Hurst reports.
5: On the conference floor and right around the Brighton centre the slogan Fairer Tax in Tough Times is emblazoned almost everywhere you look. It's a reminder that halfway through the five-year coalition government the Lib Dems and the Conservatives in this conference season are starting to stake their territory for the next election. Which they will fight as rivals but they have to govern together for the next two and a half years during which time the lib dems will not have a voice in the ministry of defense a decision taken by their leader nick clegg well,
6: at least of course because i have a great deal of confidence in the work of the mod and in the work of the secretary of state for uh, defense uh, and of course The crucial issues on the security of the country, on our foreign policy and our defence policy, are rightly discussed, not just in those departments, but at the top of government, between the Prime Minister and myself.
5: The man whose job he chose to sacrifice, former Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey, clearly doesn't
6: see it the same way. Clearly the party leader has to make these sorts of judgments as to where he thinks it's most important to have people. But for for my part, I I would have preferred that we still had a, a voice in both those two departments. What do you lose by not having a voice there? I think the ability to help shape and frame the agenda, which then comes up to the National Security Council and the Cabinet. When I first got involved in politics, a wise old head said to me, always try and get hold of the drafting. The draftsman has a great deal of impact. Do you think you as a Liberal Democrat made a significant difference? Can you point to anything which
5: you think would have happened differently had
6: you not been there as a Lib Dem? Well, clearly the austerity has uh, limited what we were able to do. So some of the things we'd hoped to do back at the time of the election, particularly on private soldiers pay on housing and so on, we've not been able to do because there simply hasn't been the money to do it. But I think that having me in there uh, championing some of these um, welfare issues for the armed services has probably helped keep them bubbling away on the agenda. Um, And this is unfinished business because uh, there's a lot more to do. The Ministry of Defence is is, doing what it can on things like military housing But I think everybody involved knows there's still a long way to go. That talk of unfinished business
5: may give clues as to how the Lib Dems start to shape a distinctive defence policy in planned work at their two big conferences next year. And we already know they're working on alternative proposals to the like-for-like replacement of Trident, designed to save billions of pounds. But what about conventional forces? A question I put to former leader and former defence spokesman, Min Campbell.
6: We need a much higher degree of integration with our European allies, particularly France. And we also need our European allies to step up to the plate and to spend more on defence. You want common procurement to try and keep procurement costs down. You want interoperability. And, of course, you want force specialisation. But I don't try to hide the fact that there will be some very considerable political issues involved. Europe in the past has not been very good at speaking collectively on the political elements of defence.
5: Defence is really a hot political battleground, and yet it is seen as one of, if not the most important jobs of government. The Lib Dems know voters will notice and punish you when you get it wrong, probably far more than they will credit you for getting it
2: right.
0: James Hurst reporting there. Um, Christopher, um, have the Liberal Democrats lost their influence on defence?
2: No, they haven't at all. Um, And and just just one point, I mean, the the idea that the the, the British electorate will punish you if you don't get your defence policy right. Well, quite frankly, I can't remember a single time when defence... I know what's coming. When defence was (laughs) an electoral issue, and that's all that matters in politics. (laughs) I thought thought you were
0: going to say something worse,
2: actually. No, 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 no. The other thing is this. Um, they haven't lost their influence uh, one is that Nick Harvey who was the minister was chairing something called the Trident Alternative Group Indeed. and the study and it's got so far and it's probably got as far as it actually needs to go and so it, it, with great respect to me it wasn't doing a great deal I mean Perhaps you get a knighthood out of this. I don't know, but it's it's that sort of sort of that is that sort of business you've got to understand. They have to trade, and what they've traded for, which is most important, they've traded for another minister, a Lib Dem minister in the Treasury. And at the end of the day, it's the Treasury that will decide defence policy, not the Ministry of Defence.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. This is BFBS sitrep. This Saturday, we'll see between 25 to 30,000 people march through Belfast in the Orange Order's Ulster Covenant Parade. The parade is to celebrate 100 years since the signing of the Ulster Covenant, which ultimately prevented Home Rule being implemented in Ulster and meant the six counties stayed part of the United <laughs> Kingdom. We're joined now by Northern Ireland analyst Chris Ryder in Belfast. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Uh, Last month, seven police officers were injured when trouble broke out after several loyalist bands defied a Parades Commission ruling by playing music as they marched past a Catholic church. This parade will march past that same church again. Any concerns about that?
7: Oh, there's very serious concerns about it. You see, the whole crisis started in July when uh, the the, the main 12th of July parade halted outside the church and one of the bands formed up a circle and played a song uh, uh, about the Irish famine, which uh, a Scottish court had ruled to be uh, sectarian uh, in relation to it being sung by Rangers football fans in Glasgow. And so uh, that was videoed and received very wide distribution. It caused a lot of outrage, and that created tensions through July, through August. When the the, the next routine parade came in August, um, the Parades Commission said that that band couldn't take part and that uh, the band should only play a a single drumbeat going past the church. But there's such opposition to the Parades Commission among the Orange Order and, and the Loyal Orders that they defied the Parades Commission, they marched past the church, the the band uh, that was supposed to be uh, uh, prohibited from that, it marched as well, and they all played music. And that triggered off uh, quite a lot of rioting, uh, not least because there was a a counter-march by Republicans. Now, that that would normally have been the end of the marching season. But, of course, this is the centenary year of the Ulster Covenant, and the Orange Order has planned this big march for Saturday, which uh, is now filled with tension.
0: Indeed, and just explain the importance of that Ulster Covenant.
7: Well, towards the the end of the the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th century, there was a very uh, controversial proposal to introduce Home Rule for Ireland, Uh, and um, the the Unionists in the North opposed that. They equated Home Rule to Rome Rule, and um, in a bid to underline the determination to resist Home Rule, they uh, had this covenant drawn up by which they agreed that they would oppose by any and all means uh, the introduction of Home Rule. Uh, At the same time, they put in hand plans to bring in a massive shipment of arms, which happened around about the same time. And uh, this covenant was signed by nearly half a million people um, all over Northern Ireland. Some of them actually signed it in blood. And uh, this was uh, the, the precursor then to the War of Independence and the Civil War uh, in Ireland, which uh, ultimately in 1922 resulted in partition. But the, 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 the net result of the Covenant was that the opposition to home rule was mapped out and there was always going to be a separate Northern Ireland after that.
0: Martin McCauley, you were born in Northern Ireland. Is the Covenant still relevant today? Um, to an
1: outsider, it's not because uh, one had hoped that the two sides would come together. Uh, I was born in Oma, and we go back there on a regular basis. And Oma, uh, the, the uh, politics is Sinn Féin and Unionist, and the two sides uh, 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 change the mayor. Uh, they agree the Catholics are in the majority, so therefore you accept that. And basically, uh, you accept that uh, both are Irish, one is Catholic and the other is Protestant. But you do have these who are, uh, see themselves intensely Protestant and don't really want to come into any association with Catholics. I find it very difficult to understand, uh, but uh, they do. And uh, the only hope is that uh, uh, they will gradually see this. This this confrontation now is, is totally illogical and unnecessary. But unfortunately, these are very, very strong opinions. And if you like, it's a culture. It's a cultural identity which is uh, under threat.
0: Indeed, and and Chris Chris Ryder, uh, the culture there that that Martin was talking about, it it does seem extremely important and lasting to commemorate such dates and the battles indeed.
7: You see, there there is a complete... Although we have a degree of political harmony now and and the the amount of violence has subsided... Um, uh, There's a small threat from dissident Republicans who don't accept the settlement. But uh, away from that, there are 40 peace lines in Belfast dividing Protestant and Catholic communities. Um, Last week, 63% of people in a survey said they wanted the peace lines to remain. And uh, there's no uh, cross-community contact in many, many places. The sectarian division is very, very deep-seated. Um, in many, many respects, economic and social and all the rest of it. And and uh, there's no great appetite for what people here call a shared future. And the, 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 the storm of the administration is divided on sectarian political lines. Um, r- governance is done on a tit-for-tat basis. If one side gets this, the other side has to get that. Uh, and we have these constant tensions... Uh, at, at what are called the sectarian interfaces over housing, over all sorts of other issues. There, there's an old army barracks at Girdwood um, which has been handed over to the Northern Ireland Executive for redevelopment they can't even agree what to do with that because there's pressing need for houses for Catholics but the, the, the Protestants don't want the Catholics to have the houses mm. because that would upset the electoral balance in the North Belfast wards and uh-huh. so the politics uh, affects the housing decision and not need and, and that's replicated right across Northern Ireland people won't sell their property to one of the other shortest. To put it in many, many areas. Oh. And apart from the rigid sectarian geography in Belfast, you really do have, have the same separated sectarian geographies throughout Northern Ireland, and there's no sign of it coming to an end.
0: All right. Chris Ryder in Belfast, thank you very much for your time today. Now, just before we go, let's finish where we started. New York, the venue for a meeting between David Cameron and the Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi. On the agenda, an agreement to send British military advisers to Egypt. Uh, Christopher, what are we getting into here and why?
2: Well, first thing that's going to happen is the Chief of the Defence Staff, um, General Richards, is going to Cairo. He's going to be talking to the chief uh, Chiefs of Staff in, in Cairo and he, his proposal is this. You take a group of guys, British soldiers, down to the Sinai Peninsula and they will help organise the security of that. If you go back to the beginnings of the United Nations, the first peacekeeping operation was in the same area.
0: All right, Christopher, thank you. Also, thank you to Martin McCauley and Chris Ryder, our guests this week. So if you have any views on the topics we've covered, get in touch. Our email address is sitrep at bfps.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.
1: This is Sitrep on BFPs.